are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Kendra Holtmore, assistant professor of religion at Bethany College. And my most recent ailment was a concussion uh, from a snowboarding fall. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my most recent ailment was COVID. Rachel Jackson, Rabbi Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. My most recent ailment is um, real, pretty bland, but irritating nonetheless. It was just a headache, but it was one of those headaches that I couldn't get rid of and a headache for no reason and I felt like oh my god I'm just old I now just get headaches. Ian Benz associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte and my most recent ailment is uh, arthritis in my right hand where this part is where the thumb comes down and connects to the wrist it is definitely confirmed no longer early onset arthritis so Hmm. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> why did you Why did you ask for this question, Ian? Uh, for two reasons. One, because we just passed your birthday, Rachel. So it's <laughs> celebration. Of your birthday. Uh, <laughs> You're old. Everything hurts. Yeah. Uh, just adding the parenthetical aside, "Everybody Hurts" from REM is an amazing song and, from 1992. And it's younger yeah, than I and am. Kendra should know. Yeah, I know that it was out before. No. When were you born again, Kendra? 1991? 91. Ah, see, so. It's not that old. Nothing hurt then. (laughs) I was fresh. Uh, (laughs) Fresh and vibrant. The uh, second reason uh, that we're asking this question is because we're starting our new miniseries, our next miniseries on healing. Uh, So for today, I'm going to give just a very quick crash course in kind of the history of healing from a science perspective. And I will let our uh, listeners know that, you know, my background and understanding this is definitely more in the Western science. So please, if anyone hears this and says, hey, you've left out some cultures, you know, historical cultures that I do apologize for that. But um, as I said, this is going to be very brief. So we could do several episodes just on the history of medicine. But um, so anyway, so I kind of wanted to just uh, give some general uh, interesting things that have occurred over time. And then we, I wanted us to be able to get in a conversation about uh, like medical treatments uh, for different ailments as well. Um, but some of our understanding of the history of medicine goes all the way back to prehistoric times. Um, and this is where I think it will come into play throughout our series as well of how um, different cultures used to attribute uh, different types of magic or religion to ailments. You know, maybe it was something to do with evil spirits or something like that. Um, but you know, supernatural origin versus more of a natural origin of, of, uh, of a reason for different ailments. But one of the things that we know from the discovery of different prehistoric skulls is that they would actually drill a hole into the skull of the victim because they believed that that the speculation is, and then we actually see this occurred in more recent human history that it would release the disease. And so that was one thing. You mean patient. <laughs> did I say victim? <laughs> you did say victim. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to keep that in because you know, if you're, you're going to, you're showing your hand yeah, here. If you are going to drill <laughs> during prehistoric times and you're going to knock a hole into the person's skull. They may end up being the victim. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, um, oh. so yeah, there you go. Uh, and then now we, we're going to jump ahead to uh, ancient Egypt when we start actually seeing some evidence of uh, written evidence of different types of uh, treatments and medicine. Um, one example is from the what was called the Smith Papyrus, um, written in 1600 BCE, right around there. But it was actually, we believe it was a copy of a text from much earlier, so roughly 3000 BCE. But in that particular um, papyrus uh, that's now, I think, in New York, it contained 48 case studies. There was no theory for anything, but it was an observation and kind of a recording of what it is that they knew. So the case studies were all written the same way. You had the title, the examination, so what they were observing, and then the diagnosis, and then the treatment, and then they would have a glossary for terms. But again, there would still be speculation about well, what role do evil forces or spirits play in the cause of diseases. And then we're going to jump ahead more to ancient Greece. And this is where um, many people may have heard of um, Hippocrates of Kos, um, circa BCE or 420 BCE. He was one of the first people who kind of focused on natural explanations, trying to move away from supernatural explanations. And he was one of the people who came up with the idea of the four humors um, which those are blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. And if you were healthy, that means the four humors were in balance. If you were not healthy, that means something was off. One of the humors was off. And so this is where we start getting the idea of bloodletting. So for example, if someone had a fever, it was due to an abundance of blood. And so they would do bloodletting as a way to cure the fever. Uh, but still at this time, and again, I'm skipping over a lot of people, um, they learned different things with anatomy, but they were only allowed to dissect animals because in the, and at the time it was illegal to dissect humans. Um, at which time, uh, still 420 BCE. So this is still the BCE era, ancient, oh, ancient really? Greece. That sounds more like a Christian hangup than a Greek yeah. hangup. Well, and actually too, I, you know, this is, I, I'm trying to prepare for today's episode. I did see in some of the more, um, ancient Eastern cultures of, you know, like Hinduism, uh, and from the early, early stages of that, that they were also not allowed to, um, cut into the human body and dissect human bodies either. So hmm. this is not just in that area, but yeah, you're right. Because Zach, as you just said, that we see that all the way up into the 1500s that they weren't supposed to be dissecting humans in, in Europe, for example. Uh, but they did not necessarily, uh, figure out the reason or the causes of the different parts of the body that they were removing from the body. So when it came to anatomy, who the yes. Egyptians from what I understand, from what I understand, um, or am I off on that? And which I find that's fine. Uh, it depends. The, um, the Ebers, uh, papyrus. And that's again, right. all these papyri, 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 I don't know if the plural is Many uh, papyrus? Mm, the papyruses, um, they are the named after the, the hippopotami. <laughs> yes. Sorry. They're, they're all named after the discoverer. <laughs> they're all named after. They're, no, not the discoverer. They're named after the white guys who bought it at auction and That's then brought it back to their right. country. So, you know, all of Egyptian treasures are in Europe or America somewhere instead of where they belong. But anyway. Yeah, the Smith papyrus probably wasn't named for a guy named Smith all the way back then. <laughs> right, no, Pharaoh yeah. Smith. No, that's that's not really an Egyptian yeah. name. But uh, the Ebers papyrus was in uh, 1550 BCE, mm-hmm. and it had a really detailed explanation of the heart and the entire circulatory system. Um, it was a bit wrong in some of the ways in that they thought that the, the, the heart pumped all fluids. So that includes 
um, urine and semen as well as um, as blood, but they understood the purpose of of the the blood going through the muscles and the veins and the arteries and all of that. They actually also had some psychiatric conditions that were tied up in uh, conditions of the heart. They mentioned like dementia and depression, which were uh, problems of the heart because they would dissect people after they died and look at the quality of their ventricles and all of that. Um, so. They didn't know what the brain was. They thought that was garbage, but yeah. the the heart was the center of, yes. of it all. Thank you for correcting me, Zach. I, I forgot about that papyrus. Papyr, pa, yeah, pap, papyrus. Papyr, yes, go ahead, Rachel. <laughs> papyrus. Hippopotamus. I was just going to add that um, <laughs> because things are so because things are so ancient, we tend to forget that there is. We say Egyptian. We're mm. looking at thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of years when we say ancient Egypt. So 1500 BCE is kind of the middle, right? Middle late kingdom, right? This, yeah. these are the new kingdoms, um, right? This is not, these are not the ones that built those giant pyramids, right? That's a thousand years earlier right. that they did that. So I think when we, when we talk about that, we should do a little bit of justice and say, Hey, it would sort of be like saying, Hey, all Englanders, like right. for all time, right? Well, that's just been two thousand years. Like it's at some point. So just to add to that piece, and same thing with the um, the Greek piece. Right? Ancient Greek mm. has been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's no, just a little bit that. of history, not the. Uh, speaking of the history piece too, in about in the twelve hundreds or so BCE, there was the uh, this mysterious Bronze Age collapse in which these massive societies, the ancient right. Egyptians, the Mycenaeans, um, all the 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 Hittites, they just they just collapsed. And we're not entirely sure why. Possibly the sea peoples, possibly climate change, possibly a million other things. Aliens, if you watch the History Channel. But <laughs> all of these amazing societies, the Minoans, another one, they all just disappeared. And so you see later Greek society and later Egyptian society then trying to make sense of the fact that there are these ancient ruins that are massive and they just assume that ancient heroes built them, which is where a lot of the mythology comes from. But so like this sort of understanding of anatomy and health was probably somewhat lost Mm -hmm. in going into the period that now you're talking about where people aren't allowed to dissect. Um, So we see them now because we found the papyri, but they may not have had them as well. Well, So Zach, you mentioned, you know, of that you know, massive loss of civilization around that time frame, and you mentioned you know, seafaring people too. I mean, are you talking about Atlantis there, buddy? I mean, is, that, is that I am actually yeah. the Minoans, um, were probably the source of the Atlantean myth as far as because wasn't Plato one of the first ones to talk about it? Plato was the first one to write, write about that. We have documentation. It's an Egyptian story that Plato heard okay. and wrote about, that there's this island nation that was super advanced in technology and in society, and then they angered Poseidon, right? And then they were wiped out by the sea for their iniquities. And so that lines up really nicely with the Minoan people who were on Crete, who at the time, I mean, we're talking 1500 BCE, further back, had like three-story buildings with hot and cold running water and indoor plumbing. They had amazing art and architecture. They were they they were doing things that thousands of years later people hadn't discovered. And then they were just they were hit by this massive tsunami after the um 
Oh, what's that that place in Greece that everyone goes on vacation with the beautiful blue waters? Uh, Santorini. Yeah. The, oh, the yeah. volcano there exploded. Oh, that's right. And caused. Uh, caused dust, it caused uh, tsunamis, and basically wiped out their society, and then the Mycenaeans conquered them, and then the Bronze Age collapsed. So we forgot all about them for thousands of years, but they were probably the inspiration of Atlantis. It's not aliens. Sorry. It's probably just Minoans. That's a bummer. Yeah, well, this has been Zach Ruin's mythology for you. Um, (laughs) Ooh, a new segment. I love that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You could just splice this out and move it to the end. So let's get back to... uh, because I think while yes. we're oh, yes, while we're sorry. doing this too, it's interesting. You know, while I am going to be you know focusing mostly on how we start to see more of a focus on natural, you know, phenomena, natural explanations, and a scientific approach to medicine that you still do see you know and you know, like Hippocrates being one of the individuals again from 420 BCE trying to move away from supernatural. That um, even with um, the work of Hippocrates that it did not drive out like the rivals, you know, along the more traditional forms of healing up to that point, those the tr- traditional forms of healing belief and practice that those still existed. So it's not like when his work and, and his contemporaries, you know, and, and, and actually there's speculation that Hippocrates was multiple people. Um, it was not one. Um, and so um, just because of that though, it did not drive out this, the more um, traditional ways of, belief and practice as i was saying so then i'm going to jump ahead roughly 500 years to rome and galen so galen uh was a um individuals uh, from 129 to circa 200 ce and he really started getting into this notion of we need to rely on the world of our senses and but he still accepted the idea of the four humors that was originally proposed by um Hippocrates. He recognized that arteries contain blood and not merely air. He also showed how the heart sets blood in motion, but he did not have an idea about the whole notion of circulation, blood circulation. But he was he did start figuring out that you know the heart did move things at least a little bit. We definitely see evidence of controlled experimentation uh, with Galen. He focused some on anatomy, but again, at the time frame, dissection of humans was illegal. And so his work was focusing on animals, the section of animals. And it's his work um, that actually kind of stayed when you think about Western culture and Western medicine kind of was the prevailing view of how things were done until the 1500s, Um, which actually uh, the reason why I remember that so much is with that part is because his work was occurring right right around the time of Ptolemy when you talk about astronomy and that Mm. stayed around for roughly the same amount of time till you know, Copernicus in his work. So it was kind of all those things uh, started happening right around the same time. So now again, you know, I, my apologies for leaving out multiple cultures that I want to jump ahead again now to medieval and Renaissance Europe. And so, uh, as I said, Galen's uh, views kind of held uh, strong until roughly the 1500s. And this is when we see Andreas Vesalius um, emerge and yes, there were others before him, but he was one of the first ones to really get into dissection of humans I think he had, he was a person who had students who were grave robbers because it was still illegal at the time, but he realized that we needed for anatomy, we needed a better understanding of the human body. So he would have, his students would become grave robbers and um, steal the bodies. And then they would do special dissections, you know, for like a show. I mean, there were many, many people watching, but they would have lookouts to make sure that they weren't doing anything that they wouldn't get caught. Uh, 
Do you put them back? I don't know that part. After you're done? I don't know. I would hope so. Yeah, you'd think so. I would, thi- I would think so. Not just hope so, yeah. but I would think so. Yeah. And apparently he was a very skilled dissector. And he felt like, you know, it was they had to move away from Galen and his views. And don't forget, you know, I said, you know, we're jumping time. This was 1,400 years later. So Galen's views held strong for a long time. Um, but he did a lot of dissection of humans um, and his scientific observations and methods um, with these Vesalius show that Galen can no longer be regarded as the final authority. And so that's when we start to see, and again, this is also aligning with the time of the Renaissance. That's when we start seeing movement away from more ancient um, understandings when it comes to science, um, to medicine, uh, for example, he believed in the importance of empirical knowledge, independent observation and experimentation. So Vesalius was really into those types of things. I don't know if he was ever caught. I have to look into that one. Hmm. Yeah. Well, now he is. Well, yeah. You blew his cover, yeah. man. Sorry. Sorry, everybody. Um, uh, but what's interesting is even when that was occurring, we were also still seeing some people who were holding on to the idea that, um, you know, while experimentation is important, that we still need to, um, uh, uh, Paracelsus was one of them. I think I'm saying that correct. Um, he presents the idea that humans are the ultimate ends to God's creation. So the ultimate form he held on to something called a chemical philosophy, which is a Christian philosophy, but it was not very widely accepted at the time. Cause as, as I've already said, this was the time of the Renaissance. They were trying to move away from those types of explanations. And so, uh, he was still around, but he was trying to blend the two between experimentation, but also to holding to, um, the importance of God and humans kind of being the ultimate form. And then the next person I want to talk about uh, before we start really going into different types of ailments and stuff, just because of, as I said, the history is William Harvey. He was 1578 to 1657. So he advanced medicine even further because of careful observation and experimentation. He really focused on collecting more evidence. And this is when we really start to see what we now think of as experimentation. So, you know, control experimentation, manipulating nature. So he can see something that that normally would not be seen. He came up with the theory of the circulation of blood of blood. So we started trying to have a better understanding of how blood circulated throughout the body. And again, you know, he still was someone who did believe in the impact of a designer, uh, but he really focused on the more natural explanations. It's interesting that you say that he uh, he discovered the circulation of the blood. And we just said that three thousand years right. earlier, yeah. the Egyptians knew about the circulation. Oh, you're of right. The blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And plumbing. And plumbing. <laughs> plumbing in our own and in the world. But it's it is fascinating the historical texts still hold as like William Harvey is one of the people who really did that. Well, God forbid they credit an African for exactly. discovering yes. something. Um and so just because of uh you know, because I really want us to get into conversations around like different types of treatments we see throughout history for different ailments. Um, you know. This was the time of the Renaissance. When you start moving past that, I mean, you as we see and we've discussed throughout um, on this show in the past about the history of science and how scientific advancements just took off during this time frame, an incredibly fast rate. And it was the same for med- medical advancements too. And so we continue to see lots of different changes over time to the point where we are to are today. But what I really want to focus on, unless someone wants to talk more about other history, is getting into these treatments that we see throughout history 
if we can. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. You're chomping at the bit over there. You want to talk about about some, some treatments, yeah, huh? So, because one of them I have, <laughs> like asthma. So, mm. asthma used to be treated, uh, it was um, uh, treated by smoking. <laughs> oh. Yes. Smoking what? A uh, pipe of tobacco or cigar has the power of relieving a fit of asthma, especially in those not accustomed to it, which I thought was really- that is amazing. Not accustomed to tobacco? Yes. That was the that was the argument being presented. That is amazing. Yeah. Huh. Um, there's a when when ish was this? I think that was more like the eighteen hundreds. Oh, recent. Okay. Yeah. Well, counterpoint. No. <laughs> it does not. Don't don't smoke yes. if you have asthma. So please understand that these are old, not accurate. Um, <laughs> there's a another thing with the whole idea of smoking. Uh, yeah, for your health. This is. Uh, Back in the late 19th, early 20th century, I found a um, site that talks about these different types of uh, treatments out there. Smoking uh, for your health, asthma cigarettes. Ooh. Yeah. So, and they were, and this is an advertisement, uh, not recommended for children under six. That was nice. Um, but it, they were actually called asthma cigarettes and they effectively treat asthma, hay fever, foul breath, all diseases of the throat, <laughs> head colds, canker sores, uh, bronchial irritations. So... Yeah, so that was a good thing. Well, so when you're talking 19th and 20th century, and these are like some crazy, wacky solutions for things, like when they would give cocaine to children for their cough and all of that, um, that's not entirely like saying that the ancient Romans used electric eels to cure hemorrhoids. I know. Which... Which is real. Um, well, when we're in the 19th and 20th centuries, a lot of these are the companies understood the awful things that their 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 products did to people, but they made Marketing. false advertisements to sell these addictive things to people. Um, you know, the Bayer Corporation knew all about the addictive qualities of cocaine and still pushed it as a uh, as a simple pain reliever because they could get people addicted to it, and like those sorts of predatory capitalism mm-hmm. has existed for the past couple hundred years with with uh, pharmaceuticals and we are paying that price now with the opioid a- epidemic so when uh, the smoking industry in the 1800s they didn't understand that it gave cancer obviously but um, but they knew it wasn't people, good yeah no it's those not. advertisements are in, intentionally misleading because there was no oversight well and earlier i referred to bloodletting and, you know, was yes. talking about, you know, ancient, ancient Greece, you know, and, and four, 400 BCE bloodletting did not just end then bloodletting was something that was continued for a very long time for centuries. And I, right. And I believe, and I have not fact checked this. So if someone else has, please correct me or corroborate, whichever it might be. Um, my son and I were doing stuff about presidents and a little factoid that I heard was that George Washington got a fever, just like you were saying, Ian. And at that time, um, right, this is George Washington, early, early 19th century, and he got a fever. And so they decided to do bloodletting. Mm-hmm. And they did bloodletting twice on him, so much so that he died. Um, oh. yeah, that's <laughs> no, not again, really good. I have not 
I have not double checked that fact, but I also haven't seen anything to contradict it. So, uh, yeah, take that with a grain of salt as it may. But that was it was all the way up until George Washington is when they were really still using this as a technique to cure people from things like fevers, which are very, very dangerous. But unless you have something to just take down the fever, you're either going to live it or you're like or you're not. Yeah, the um, the Constitution Center. Um, constitutioncenter.org says that that process of bloodletting probably let about 40% of his blood supply. Right. So you can't really make it through a sickness with 40% of your blood supply. Right. So imagine, I mean, think about when you donate blood. Do the three of you donate blood any on a regular I or at all anymore ever? Because I grew up in Europe. Can't. Nope. Right. I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> Mad cow disease, just in case people don't know. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Zach, do you ever? No, yeah. okay. I, I don't. I, don't I mostly have issues with needles. So yeah, exactly. They told me not to. Yeah, don't do that. Um, better for everybody that you don't go into the hospital for donating blood. Our last um, blood drive was uh, <laughs> canceled, I think, because of a COVID-related thing. Mm-hmm. But I would like to, but yeah. I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those like really simple, really useful things that if a person is healthy and no guilt, no judgment um, for anyone that does or doesn't. You can do it every 56 days and they take about a liter. And generally speaking, people, adults have five to six liters. Um, And they say, okay, you're going to feel queasy. Don't do any weightlifting. Don't do anything extraneous for a minimum of 24 hours. Like you've got to just take it real easy and you have to be healthy when you donate because your body needs every blood cell that it has when it's healthy or when it's sick. And when it's healthy, yeah, we've got an extra 20%. So let's give it away. But if you take more than that, you're not going to survive very well. And then if you take more than that, and you're sick, your body has no ability to fight off the diseases, right? We talk about blood cells all the time and the white blood cell counts and red blood cells. And how do we think we were just talking about the circulation system, right? The circulatory? How do you think all of those good anti, um, you know, your immune system actually gets to these infections through your bloodstream. And if you don't have a good flow in bloodstream, right, if this is August after a rough summer, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I know that in modern medicine, they still do use leeches. There are medical leeches mm-hmm. and they're usually used to drain excess blood or like, you know, pooling of blood and hematome hematomas is that the the thing um because it's it's sanitary and it's easier and if people are willing to have a leech on them for a while then it's great but like historically bloodletting's been around for a very long time thousands and thousands of years it must have worked at least a little bit or else they wouldn't have kept doing it right but don't you think correlation and causation comes into play here but people well, get yeah, people I mean, get better regardless of what we try to do to them. <laughs> and so just because someone got better doesn't mean that what we did to them made them better. Well, so like there's an old remedy in which if you got bit by a snake, you would take a, a duck and put its butt on the wound and then cut its head off. And then while the butt is on the wound the, and the thought was that it would suck out the, the poison. Duck, the duck and, like, butt would suck out the poison. Yes, 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 everyone knows this. I just wanted to make that clear. Um, (laughs) 
I'm yes. actually quite excited about that. But one. like that that didn't stick. Yeah. Nope. Uh, but like draining people of their blood, a painful procedure that is gross and uh, makes me feel queasy thinking about that stuck around for thousands of years. What, like, is there any kind of medical uh, benefit? Like even in, obviously not in Washington's case, like if you have an infection, don't get rid of your blood. But like, d- would that stimulate uh, antibodies to then like go to the wound or like, adrenaline to help boost the system are any of you familiar with any positives of bloodletting i not i'm I'm not answering this question to like describe physiological processes but the placebo effect is extremely powerful like in Mm -hmm. just the study Hmm. of medicine like contemporary researchers um there's some who have done a lot of really interesting work on placebo effects and obviously like we don't have the same kind of data to uh, like, you know, like double pl- double blind study results of placebo effects for like ancient practices, ancient <laughs> cultures. But um, I think, you know, cross culturally, all human societies, we all do things that, um, you know, as Rachel said, we can't really like tie a, a causation thread between those practices and healing in a definitive way. But a lot of what we do we do for like cultural or you know comfort <laughs> reasons and even that is like different than placebo which in a lot of cases like the placebo effect does actually change like it does lead to physiological changes um and it's kind mm. of like weird and mysterious but i think that i think that's uh not something to take for granted or um underappreciate because uh you know i think even like early psychological studies showing you know if you're in a situation where you're around like comforting familiar people and a comforting familiar environment you just fare better like even if we're not talking about injury you fare better in terms of your like mental health mental well-being which translates to sometimes like physical well-being um and that you know those are those are things that are, I think, often considered like non-essential pieces of the healing process. But, but yet we we all, you know, like there are uh, studies to show that people care about a doctor's bedside manner. <laughs> people care mm-hmm. about having, you know, chaplains come into hospital settings to to support people, and that 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 does facilitate something real in terms of healing. Um, but it's, it's just not, there's not like a clear, like hard scientific way of describing that necessarily. But I, that, that's not to say that it's like not important also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would add that, you know, you were just talking there, Kendra, about hospitals, but also previous to that, you were saying, in places where people are surrounded and around things that they're comfortable with, the best healing happens when you're not in a hospital, Mm. right? A a hospital is no place for a sick person. I mean, and and I mean that my dad, my dad now a doctor said that to me and it's like, that makes perfect sense because to really, unless you're really sick and you can't be at home, being at home is your best chance of getting 
better, and I'm using that word intentionally, right? Getting closer to a cure and your sense of normal faster than being in a hospital. And the hospitals are there for the very, very sick people who cannot be at home for whatever reason. So that's one of those other reasons, like stay away from a hospital. Also, they just have a lot of germs still. So stay (laughs) away from a hospital. (laughs) Unless again, you have no other alternative. Um, And so, you know, to answer Zach's question there too, I think the idea of so, Zach, you were kind of recoiling from the ickiness of leeches. And I wonder, um, or the bloodletting perspective, I wonder if part of the causation and the correlation might be you're now treating a person differently. You're giving them advantages. Maybe you're giving them more soup. Maybe you're giving them more fluids. Maybe you're treating them differently because, oh, it's so serious that we have to call a doctor in or whoever, whatever their title was, whoever was giving the leeches, the priest perhaps, right? That now they're so different that their everydayness is being being treated differently. You give them the extra blanket, you give them the soup, you take them outside, like whatever it is, that that's really what's happening. And so, yes, the leeches are helping, but only as a secondary issue. That reminds me of the correlation causation argument around the increased health of religious people. Mm. Right? We've, we've heard that those numbers thrown around a lot, that people who regularly are connected to religious communities are healthier, live longer than people that don't. Right. Yeah. And the argument from the religious perspective is that, well, faithful people have God and God heals you and prayer works. And so prayer, prayer for people are healthy people. When the opposite argument is then, yeah, the opposite argument is that, well, you're connected to a religious community. You've got people that care for you. You've got people that come by. There's comfort. There's there's connection. There's soup delivered to your door every day. And those intangibles are what cause the the, the health and the healing. Yeah. And the direction of the correlation is not always clear if you're looking at like study results. So (laughs) if you're healthy and able-bodied to like get to your church or synagogue or whatever, Mm. then you can, you can do that. (laughs) But you were already healthy from the starting point. Whereas if you're like chronically ill and unable to get out of bed, then maybe you don't go to uh, a religious service okay. because you're not able to. But the starting point, the kind of direction of behavior was influenced by the status of your health rather than like the status of your religiosity. And that that whole like body of literature is like really, really vast. Um, and it, it is really interesting, but that's a good, good examples to bring up when we're talking about correlation. <laughs> yeah. But Zach, you asked earlier about, you know, why did bloodletting last for so long? I mean, there is, you know, I just started remembering that there are certain um, chronic diseases, blood diseases that people will have or blood cancers that will have where it will produce too much either Mm -hmm. iron in their blood or too much red blood cells. And the Mm -hmm. way they do that, uh, the way that one of the treatments for that is a phlebotomy. Um. And so, which is the removal of amount, a specific amount of blood is more than just going in and doing a, you know, a donation, for example. Um, and so I, mm. uh, and that is done for medical purposes. Like my dad used to have to do that, uh, cause of a blood disease that he had. And so, um, 
you know, so I started very quickly looking at what is the difference between bloodletting and phlebotomy. Um, and you know, some of this is just saying that bloodletting was a therapeutic practice that started in antiquity, but that there's still phlebotomy is another way of saying bloodletting. It's well, not yeah, when you controlled. Go, it's phlebotomist. Correct. It's the person that takes it's the It's controlled now yeah. than it used to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Or at least we think it's controlled. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the things I want to yeah, so, I want to be cautious about too. Um when we talk about old older treatments, you know, the the cutting off the duck's head and how ridiculous it is or um how they used to use urine to whiten their teeth. Um oh you know, stuff stuff like that, where we can easily look back at those folksy, unintelligent people and say, my goodness, aren't we so intelligent today? We have science, and science has given us all the answers. And those of you who might be listening at home or have people in your lives who you've talked to about sorts of things will then, you know, get kind of rightly upset at the the sort of hubris mm-hmm. of of mm-hmm. that that there's there's medicine and then there's alternative medicine mm-hmm. and alternative medicine is based just on placebo and fantasies and dreams and real medicine is based on science and truth and i think modern medicine is wonderful and it has given us so much more trust in the process and understanding the why of things work but that a lot of what we have in modern medicine is based on traditional medicine You know, the ancient, ancient Egyptians knew that if you had pain or inflammation or fever, that you could chew on birch bark and it would reduce those things. And it wasn't until much later that that's how we got aspirin, you know, or I think of of penicillin just comes from what mold Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, and how many of like indigenous cultures will watch the way that nature interacts with itself and then we'll gain lessons from that, you know, watching what this animal eats when they eat it, and then using that and applying that and finding that those things work. And only much, 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 much later do we discover the the, the scientific rationale for it. And, you know, we're seeing a, a sort of a resurgence in the past couple of decades of people taking indigenous medicines seriously and looking for like the whys of why these things have stuck around for so long and lots of times discovering that there is there is wisdom behind these traditions and the whole colonial western mindset of it's our way or it's just fantasy is not all that helpful thank you for that perspective i think we do need to you know, recognize our own bias and also recognize, you know, as we were sort of talking about the, with the tobacco industry, that there's a lot of push with marketing and there's a lot of issues in those ways that we're all very susceptible to that came out of this trusting of the scientific process. Um, and just because it's old doesn't mean it is, um, old and unscientific doesn't mean that it's not also helpful. Right. So putting that yes. caveat. Also, sometimes they are awful and <laughs> that we shouldn't do the old things. You know, like also we <laughs> if you have syphilis at home, do not inject mercury into your urethra because that does not work. Right. Despite the fact that uh, Blackbeard did it. And well, and I think, too, yeah. and, are there other are there other? Oh, sorry. Ian. Well, sorry. just real quick, you know, you talk about this and I think this will be you know, what you're just discussing, um, Zach. 
you know, and wanting to be respectful. Um, and one of the, the people I hope to get on the show sometime uh, is David Destino, who wrote the book, How God Works. Um, mm. And in this particular book, I mean, he is talking in some situations about healing, you know, and says early on, I've not finished it yet, but, um, you know, it says, I realized that the surprise of my colleagues and I felt when we saw evidence of religion's benefits was a sign of our hubris. Born of a common notion among scientists, all of religion was superstition and therefore could have little practical benefit. Yet as I learned, and as this book shows, spiritual leaders often understood in ways that we can now scientifically confirm how to help people live better lives. And so, um, and he is someone I, I really, and you know, I'll reach out to him, see if we can get him on the show, because I think that's some interesting research he's done to show, you know, what is it we're learning now, um, and how, you know, it's applicable to helping yeah. others. But another one I wanted to bring up was the notion of maggot therapy. Ooh, yes. Yeah. Which I've got a little bit here, but if you know more and please, but, um, which I, I no say it. Rachel hates bugs. Yeah, so here oh, we go. God. Um, <laughs> so I could do I could do leeches all day long, but maggots. Oh. I got this. Don't talk about. So moths. I got this great book called Strange Science. Wonderful book, <laughs> right? All these cool things in here, but one of them is uh, pages on maggot therapy, and it says it sounds like something from a horror film. Fat, cream-colored maggots eating their way through infected sores <laughs> and wounds. It's not. <laughs> It's medicine, Rachel. It even says Rachel right there. Since It's science. Since ancient times, doctors have used maggots to prevent wounds from getting infected. In the 1940s, antibiotics replaced maggots. But bacteria adapted and started to become resistant to antibiotics. And now we get the return of the maggots. Maggots work okay. by secreting digestive enzymes that feed on dead tissue. Those enzymes also kill bacteria in a wound and speed up healing. Doctors will place between 200 and 300 maggots on a wound, then cover it, maggots and all, with mesh. Beneath the mesh, the maggots feed for 48 to 72 hours. When they're done, the doctors remove them. Wounds that haven't healed them? for months, even years, often respond quickly to maggot medicine. And I really am hopeful. This is a video clip we need to share of the wonderful reactions we're seeing from both Rachel and Kendra. <laughs> I'm just going to be real public about this. If I am ever in a situation where I do not have a wound that heals and the only thing that could cure me is maggot therapy, just put me out of my misery. Good knowing you. Just don't. Just don't even bother. Like that. Zach is People like, like, sign me up. Pull the plug. Pull the plug. And I'm like, kill the maggots. Like, don't even just all amputate. Or that's. I, I respect people that go through that so much. I'm not one of them. I say that never having that issue. You can put the maggots on me, but then also punch me in the yeah. face and knock me out. <laughs> all right. So I'll be dead and Kendra will be unconscious. Yeah. And Zal could be loving every uh. minute. <laughs> I love bugs. Sorry. Yeah. All right, Ian, where you where do you fall in this? This spectrum? They're highly nutritious too. After they're oh, done you're just eating eat them? you, yeah, he's just you can as, just you can just kill them and dry them and then eat them and then you get all your protein. after so they've eaten all of your rotting <laughs> flesh. It's just like a nice yeah. little cycle. And then you, you get the nutrients back. Well, should you cook them first? Flesh. Circle of life. Well, Zach, would you want to cook them first? Not in your own body. 
because they no, ate your, no. your eating, the way your you do with, flesh? with insects you take the insects you suffocate them in a box with carbon dioxide so That's you don't squish so them or anything mean. then you take them out and you dehydrate them and then you crush them into a powder and add that into your food that's the best hey way to do did it. by any chance any of you all see since we're talking about maggots uh uh, can we continue for the rest of the episode? Not? See how long Rachel makes it. <laughs> yes, that's another video clip that needs to be shared of Rachel doing the gagging reflex each time I talk about maggots. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> I feel Seriously. bad for Rachel. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm not queasy, but maggots, oh God, like I. Well, so let's, <sighs> let's get into another discussion then. Uh, Please. Kellogg's, Kellogg's cornflakes. Now, I'd found a very oh, little yeah, bit of information. Good transition but away from bugs. dear listener. <laughs> yeah, uh, now that's a hello, segue. Hello, dear listener. So when I mentioned Kellogg's cornflakes prior to recording, both Rachel and Kendra perked up and seemed to know more information about this than I did. And so I will at least share the very little bit of information I have. But please, Rachel and Kendra, Kendra, jump in and tell us what you know about. Kellogg's cornflakes, but from what I have read, is that J.H. Kellogg, one of the people who developed Kellogg's cornflakes, he was a medical doctor and health activist, and he created the cornflakes. Uh, he was one of the people who created it, and he hoped that they would prevent uh, sexual urges, or more specifically, to inhibit mm. the urge to masturbate. And so, Rachel, Kendra, you reacted earlier. What what did you know? Because <laughs> this took me by complete surprise. Because it didn't I... work. So. I was going to anyway. say, Rachel, you go, because I have to no. go. It's like noon. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have that much to add either. I just, I know that that is a thing that happened. Do we not want to then talk about the very last one about hysteria before Kendra leaves? Well, we can keep talking about it, but I think she's she's got to. Yeah, I mean, I'm going uh -huh. to have to leave in like 30 seconds. Anything so. fun you want to tell us about hysteria, Kendra? Wow. Don't eat cornflakes. <laughs> just stick with Cheerios. <laughs> Cheerios make you horny, so you know that's Start according your day to with science. A nice, apparently, cold bowl of cereal if you want to feel <laughs> nothing, <laughs> not, not just cereal. If you want to feel nothing bland. at all, <laughs> bland, bland cereal for a bland, bland sex life. That's the <laughs> <whole> story. <sighs> all right, see you later. <laughs> Bye, Kendra. Cool. Enjoy your cereal. <laughs> so, what kind of what kind of like sexy breakfast was he trying to? I don't to really understand this then? one, Rachel. Can you help us out? So, I think I'm in the same same boat of it was a factoid that I very much knew and held on to, um, but I, beyond that, I don't have a whole lot of information. I mean, the idea is. Um, you know, everyone has breakfast. And so to prevent those urges in the morning, which, and also just, let's just clarify something here. Um, when they say masturbation, they really mean men. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I nobody, that out. nobody. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so basically throughout time, and this was a religious issue. And so it, it wasn't a doctor issue. It was a religious issue of um, male masturbation is against God. <laughs> going all the way back to some genesis of don't spill your seed and, and Leviticus and stuff like that. Uh, but it's a bad idea to spill your seed. And that got translated into um, don't masturbate. Um, and so it was a religious idea. And if you look at men, generally speaking, I think we were talking about this maybe a couple weeks ago too. Um, in the morning, men generally have more of 
I don't even know how to say this. Erect penises um, based on what was going on in the evenings in their dreams and their inability to um, regulate their own erections. And so if that's the first thing that you do in the morning to stop that, have cold, dry cereal. Well, something and, that's bland. And I will. S- Let's also say Kellogg as a human, Mr. Kellogg himself was a bit of an anti-sex fanatic. Mm-hmm. That's a good um, way to The man was married and still never had sex and wrote books about how he and his wife never had sex and they lived in separate bedrooms and they adopted their children and that sex pollutes the body That's and right. it's the worst thing in the world. And so like this guy was afraid of his body. Right. And, and again, did he's, not he want did this anyone in religi- else's body. Yeah. And he did this in a religious context. He didn't do it yeah. just because he was asexual and thought everyone else should be too. Yeah. Well, not asexual, I mean, anti-sexual. So I will say this. And so yeah. I did look it up. And so, and you know, um, this is now I'm getting this from Snopes and, you know, there could be good or bad things getting things from Snopes. Uh, so, but according to Snopes.com, uh, so the claim, uh, what is the, you know, that Kellogg's cornflakes were originally created in an effort to discourage American consumers from masturbating. And as you said, Rachel, it's male actually. So it should say that, um, the rating is mostly false. And so what this they're saying, what is true is that the creation of cornflakes was part of J.H. Kellogg's broader advocacy for a plain, bland diet. Without referring to cornflakes in particular, Kellogg elsewhere recommended a plain, bland diet as one of several methods to discourage masturbation. So, can I? I guess that was a <laughs> people just put that together. Can I just read a little quote from one of his books? Yeah, please yeah. do. By the way, um, so. Um, he talks about Onanism, which uh, Rachel alluded to, is uh, a story of Onan from um, where? Where in Scripture are we? That is that is where he's supposed to consummate this. Uh, so this uh, is the story of this is in Genesis in Judah. Genesis, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. with Judah, and yeah, where where he's supposed to impregnate his brother's widow, and then. Spills the seed on the ground. Because he doesn't want to, because he wants the child to be his own and not be his brother's, his dead brother's wife's son. And therefore, all the dead brother's property goes to him and he doesn't then have a son. So instead of doing that, he's just like, nope. So then God knocks him out. Right. So... So he talks about onanism. So when he talks about onanism, he's talking about masturbation. He says, neither plague nor war nor smallpox have produced results so disastrous to humanity as the pernicious habit of onanism. Such a victim dies literally by his own hand. Yeah. (laughs) Such a victim dies literally by his own hand. Literally. (laughs) He must have been so happy with that line. Can you imagine him writing that out? And he's like, oh, this is a killer. This is good. This is good. This is good. He dies by his own hand. Oh, I got to show this to someone. Yeah. Also, (laughs) let's just add to who this person was. He spent 30 years of his life dedicated to promoting eugenics. Yes, he did. Mm. So near the end of his life, whether or not there was the direct cornflakes is for masturbation, it was promoted by a person who was anti-sexual and pro-eugenic. So don't eat, you know, that's the history of cornflakes. Yeah. 
Meanwhile, recent research has found that um, for most people, sex is actually super healthy for a person's like continued health Correct. and well-being mentally, physically, emotionally, releases all kinds of amazing uh, hormones and good things into your body. And like a lot of religions throughout history have 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 recognized that, have seen yep. like Judaism. spiritual ecstasy. Like orgasm is like spiritual ecstasy. That's like the moment of connection to the divine, this breaking forth between the natural and the the supernatural and this thin place in spirituality have like celebrated that. And I think we're coming back around to yeah. that. That's a good thing. Right. You know, Christianity is still lagging far, far, far behind. Thank you, some combination of Plato and uh, Augustine. But uh, we're getting there. Yeah. You know? Maybe it's kind of like uh, um, plumbing, right? They had an ancient Egypt, and then it took like 3,000 years to come and back. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was wondering where sex. you were going with yeah, plumbing. Yeah, <laughs> not quite not quite that one. Yeah. But no, my Jewish comment, my Jewish comment was that uh Judaism sees and by Judaism, big broad stroke brush using right here. Uh <laughs> normative ancient orthodoxy style Judaism saw sex only within a marital heterosexual concept, but inside those boundaries um, yay, more of it. Also, it's a double mitzvah. It's a doubly good thing to do on Shabbat, the day that we're supposed to be the highest connected to God. And this was one of the ways to be even more connected to the divine was through sex with your spouse. Um, and I was thinking as you were talking about Kellogg too, how they didn't have sex even though they were married. One of the things in an ancient ketubah a marriage document given to the wife was right. And that if the husband doesn't fulfill his side of the contract, because well, he doesn't, or he's dead, then she gets X, Y, and Z things, you know, 50 chickens, a sheep or whatever. It depends how much she's worth old widows and, or excuse me, old divorcees are worth nothing. But beyond that, one of the stipulations in there is how often they have to have sex, how often the husband must provide sex to his wife, not the other way around. And it listed how frequent. So a day trader was like once a week at a minimum, right? But a, a merchant every three to say uh, they had um, a donkey driver that was once a month, and then a camel driver was once every three months because they recognized that if you're a camel driver, you're you're gone for a very long time. So don't punish them. And then they had like, and then because these are scholars writing this, and I don't know what their problem was. They just want to have sex with each other instead <laughs> of their wives. They said, oh, like every seven years um, is all every you have seven to. years. Yeah, like it was ridiculous oh. how often or how not often they had to have sex so that they could go to the go to their rabbi's house and study with him for years on end and then just come back once every few years, have sex with the wife and then go again. Um, so yeah, so having like having sex in the religious concept, again, in that very narrow first understanding of cis heterosexual marriages has kind of made sex positive in Judaism. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. So yeah, I, there's, there's that. 
I know because, you know, we are uh, approaching the hour, but I do want to at least because, you know, we talked about it before recording. Um, it's a chance for me to get all my giggles out uh, around the, <laughs> this idea of hysteria. Uh, yes. Even more of your about. giggles out. Yeah, most of my giggles. <laughs> <laughs> but this was something that I, I do remember um, hearing about, you know, at one point um, about female hysteria. Uh, and, um, there's different articles, you know, that I've found that talk about, you know, cause even there were films about it or there was a film about it, um, and a play. And so the idea was that, uh, and thankfully, uh, I'm going to keep fumbling this, but Rachel introduced us to a really <laughs> cool person. I want to do a shout out for Cy babe on Facebook, um, does some really interesting stuff. I'm, you know, really excited about reading more about her. Uh, but what's interesting is that um, the argument is, is that, uh, hold on, let me pull my thing up. It'll just be easier. Um, it was believed, or this is the argument, that in the Victorian era, doctors treated women diagnosed with hysteria, um, which is no longer a diagnosis, by the way, um, by genital stimulation to in- induce an orgasm. Um, this hysteria was supposed to be a buildup of fluid in the woman's womb. And doctors assumed that since men ejaculated and felt better, that it stood to reason this would work for women, women. Um, apparently, you know, uh, there was multiple, you know, ideas of what was it that, uh, the different symptoms that people would have, obviously, if they were, um, experiencing hysteria. And so this is the way to go was this manual massage. Um, but, uh, a text came out in 1999 from, and, and I believed it till I started doing more research for this, this episode. Um, a historian wrote this book that came out in 1999. Um, and in that she argued that this was the reason why, um, the vibrator was invented was to make it so that it was easier for the doctors having to treat women for hysteria. Um, I'm just saying it all nice, but you know, um, so yeah, and found out that that actually is not accurate. A more recent paper from the last couple of years has come out showing that this is actually inaccurate, that there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that, um, that women were treated for hysteria by, uh, doctors bringing them to orgasm in their offices. So, or that this was the reason why vibrators were invented. But again, a medical treatment that was, something that took off, uh, based on one historian's perspective and, uh, or, uh, book, and then others kind of push back on it. What's fascinating. We can share these in show notes or something, but, um, in reading about this particular ailment, uh, and this supposed treatment ailment. Yes. Uh, (laughs) and supposed treatment. Um, it was interesting to read about how this particular, um, historian of technology, kind of has backpedaled a little bit and has said, well, no, I didn't mean, I, I meant it more as a hypothesis, not a, yes, this is the way it was. But then, you know, when you actually look at the writing, it shows that that's not actually how it was presented in the text itself, but it still took off, right? Because it was, mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it, it sounds kind of funny. And so it took off. Yeah. People listen to it and Right, because also, you know, God forbid somebody create something for women's pleasure simply for women's pleasure. <laughs> right, and that's like, actually this. For no other this article from reason. Atlantic says that at the very beginning, 
It's a disturbing insight implying that vibrators succeeded not because they advanced female pleasure, but because they saved labor for male physicians. Right. So again, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, something right. simply for women that has nothing to do with a man right. gets co-opted into a story of, oh, those poor men. So oh, just poor, put poor doctors. Poor yeah, doctors. Okay. Yeah. Or in a really awful way of the abuse, the potential abuse of doctors taking advantage of their mm. women patients. Um, and mm. showing that it's okay. Uh, none of this is ever okay. Um, but even ever. there, I mean, you could easily go online and find. Uh, um, <laughs> what, what are you trying to find there? Yeah. Ar- no, articles <laughs> to support that this, Be this careful is what accurate. You Google. Uh, that it was used for this as, as recent as 2019. Right. You know. Um, right. So know, know your sources. Correct. Um, use some good thinking. Um, and if you're going to Google things, feel free to use private browsing. Yes. And if you're into the scientific method, you know, and you're feeling a little hysterical, <laughs> maybe you just want to try it out. Yeah. See if it works for and you. That's our message that's to right. you. Enjoy just your document orgasm. your hypothesis. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Rachel. Science is just messing around and taking notes. Right. So that's it. Take some notes. Uh, Wash your hands first. Yeah. And after. after. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's all I got. (laughs) Thank you, doctor. Yeah. Doctor. Doctor.